Good morning. Um, so you'll recall that uh, we're in Acts 20, and the Apostle Paul is hurrying to get to Jerusalem. And in the course of that trip, he stops off on the coast, talk, he wants to talk to the Ephesian elders. But rather than go to Ephesus, he calls them to him. And so uh, Acts 20 is that conversation there in the last latter part of that chapter, and that's where we are this morning. And I'll pick up that conversation beginning in verse 24 and to the end of the chapter. So this is Paul talking now to the elders that he's called to himself. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of our Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when Paul had said all these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful, most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. May God bless the preaching of this word today. Thanks. As always, let us pray to our God as we come to his word. Our God and our Father, we do acknowledge that we are coming before your word this morning, and that's a sobering reality, Father, because these are not just the words that Luke recorded from his own fallible remembrance. These are not just Luke's interpretations of the events that he was witness to. But Father, Luke was carried along, as Peter says, by your Holy Spirit. And these words, as Paul himself says, are breathed out by you. 
the Most High God. And so we come to them with reverence this morning, and we ask for your help in understanding their meaning, and we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would not only illuminate the meaning of the words to us, but that you would enact their living and active divine power within us to transform our lives by changing our minds, by changing the way that we think, that we see the world, that we understand our place in the world, that we understand our relationship to the world and our relationship to you, and to do that in such a way, Father, that would forge holiness in us, righteousness in us, sanctification in us, confidence in us, courage in us, Father, to run this race with endurance. So be with us, we pray, and may the words of my mouth and may the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight as we come to your word today, and that we ask in Jesus' name, amen. First things first today, if you have a pen or grab a pencil from the chair in front of you and take your bulletin there and scratch out the title, sorry, I know. I'm pathetic, I do this from time to time. Scratch out the title there where it says, change it from where it says Fierce Wolves, because we're not going to be able to get to that emphasis until next week, and write in the title and change it to Innocent of Blood. Innocent of Blood, from Paul's words in verse 26 of Acts 20 today because that's really what we'll be focusing on together. I know, it's funny because I tend to do this. Um, I print the bulletin and then um, decide uh, I need to change the sermon. My wife always scolds me for that. Just go with what you got. (laughs) Well, it's not right. Um, The Holy Spirit is leading me to to focus on something else. We're going to press on next week to talk about fierce wolves that threaten the flock of God, but this morning... We are going to focus on Paul's words here, and especially on his statement that he was innocent of the blood of all. So let's orient ourselves here a little bit as we come back today to our study of the 20th chapter of the book of Acts. Paul, remember, has been on his third major missionary journey, and that journey brought him all throughout Asia and Macedonia and Greece, all the way down to Corinth before He reversed course and made his return journey back through Macedonia. By the way, when he was going back through Macedonia, he was collecting financial gifts from the Christians and the churches in the various cities in Macedonia all along his way. Even though all of those churches and all of those Christians in Macedonia were were poor people, they were living in, in poverty. Paul's second letter to the Corinthians mentions this in chapters 8 and 9. He talks in there about how these believers in Jesus, these churches in Macedonia, when he was ministering to them, he was describing to them the conditions of the church in Jerusalem, and they were so moved in their heart that even out of their poverty, they were eager to help. They were eager to give. And that's what they wanted to do. They were literally pleading with Paul, let us give you money to bring back to the suffering people in Jerusalem because in Jerusalem they were, of course, living in the lion's den, right? So to speak, right in the heart of Jewish oppression and persecution against the church and against the gospel. And so, 
The Macedonians wanted to help and give money for Paul to take back and aid the suffering Christians in Jerusalem. And so Paul's returning, and he's got that gift with him, and he's, he's returning, remember, he's planning, as, as Ted mentioned, to try to be back in Jerusalem for the time of Pentecost, Shavuot in Hebrew, right? The Feast of Weeks, which comes 50 days after the Passover. And remember, he had been in Philippi for the Passover, and he had stayed there for the the seven-day period after the Passover, which was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, because as we saw, that was a perfect opportunity for him to preach Christ, to show the Christians in Philippi how Jesus is the true Passover lamb, and how Jesus is the bread of life who gives life to the world. So now, he's on his way back from this third journey, hurrying to get to Jerusalem. He's come by way of boat to Miletus, which is just to the south on the coast of Asia Minor, Turkey there, just to the south of Ephesus. He chose not to stop in Ephesus, right? Remember, because when he was in Ephesus, Prior, during his second missionary journey, God had granted such a sweet, fruitful, long season of ministry there. There was persecution, there was hardship, but there was such fruitful response to the gospel and a church was planted and disciples were made and Paul spent three years in Ephesus ministering and fellowshipping with that precious church and those precious people. And he knew that on his way back, if he stops in Ephesus, he's going to get so wrapped up in the ministry and the fellowship of those dear brothers and sisters in Christ in Ephesus that he'll never be able to make it back to Jerusalem in time for Pentecost. So he sails past and puts in at Miletus instead. And in Miletus, he sends for the elders, the leaders of the church to come down and meet with him there. And as we've seen, as we've touched on these verses a couple of times now, we've seen how Paul knew because he says the Holy Spirit testified it to him. He knew that this would, in God's providence, be the last time that he was going to see these men's faces, these precious brothers, these elders and leaders of the church from Ephesus who meant so much to him. This was it. Because he knew that what waited for him in Jerusalem when he got there was affliction, persecution, imprisonment. And he knew that wherever all of that hard providence took him, it wasn't going to take him through Ephesus again. And so these words that he imparts to these men here are his last words to them that he would speak face to face. He would write to them the book of Ephesians that we have in our Bibles. He he wrote that when the persecution eventually brought him to prison in Rome, but he would never see these men who he loved so much again and had spent three full years teaching and discipling and serving with in the church in Ephesus. So these parting words are important words. Paul didn't just call these guys down to Miletus in order to have dinner with them, in order to see them one last time, in order to fellowship with them for one more day, in order to bid farewell to them. All of that was true, but mostly what Paul urgently wanted was to impart to these men the most important things that he could think to impart to them. And we saw 
several weeks ago now, that at the heart of his message to them is an admonition for them to follow after his own example of living his life as a sacrificial servant of the kingdom of God. Because there in Ephesus, the church and the followers of Jesus were absolutely surrounded by the world's opposition to God and to God's word and to the gospel And they were facing that opposition and oppression and persecution in ways that you and I here in America have never even imagined having to face. I mean, it's hard to be a follower of Jesus in this world anywhere and in any time. And it's true here in America and it's getting harder The darkness is getting thicker. The opposition, the antithesis between the truth and the holiness of God and the the wisdom and the depravity of this world, that antithesis is becoming more and more apparent. But here and now, as hard as that is and as discouraging as it can be and as frustrating as it might seem to us living in America, it is pretty easy for us relatively speaking, compared to what they faced in the Roman Empire in the first century, and especially in a major city like Ephesus. And so, in ways that are far more real than we're maybe likely to ever know in our lives, those Christians needed to be ready to suffer for the gospel, to stand for the truth without caving and compromising to the wisdom and the demands and the expectations and the desires of the world. They needed to be strengthened by the power of the Holy Spirit to face whatever opposition, whatever persecution lay ahead of them without compromise, especially in the proclamation of the Word of God. All of it. And not, as we've seen, just the popular parts of the Word of God that people want to hear as they accumulate for themselves preachers who tickle their ears, who who tell them what they want to hear. There's a lot of that going on in the world today. And Paul says to these men, I never did that. And you must never, ever, ever do that. And he said to them, you've got to continue to run hard the race that is set before you. You've got to run it with endurance. You've got to persevere like I have until the very end. You've got to finish the course well through faith in Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit and for the glory of God. And we saw a couple of weeks ago that this overarching admonition to live sacrificially, to be ready to suffer, to count the cost to run the race with endurance as sacrificial servants of God and and others without compromise. That meant that they had to keep careful watch, remember, over their own lives so that they would be able to keep careful watch over the precious flock of God's sheep that was under their care. And we drew some important and significant application for all of us from those words in verse 28. But today... I want to focus together on this urgent message that Paul so passionately delivered 
to these church leaders, and especially I want us to focus today there on verse 26, where Paul says to them that having counted the cost of sacrificial service, having not shrunk back from declaring the Word of God in all of its fullness, he says he was innocent of the blood of all. And there's a potent message in there for God's people, God's church. As we saw a few weeks ago, again, Paul's pointing to himself a lot, right, in these verses. He's saying, here's what I did. Here's what I didn't do. Here's what I suffered. Here's what I endured. And he's not doing any of that because he wants anyone to feel sorry for him or because he wants anybody to be impressed with him. But as we've seen, he wants these church leaders to be ready to follow after his example of self-abasing, cost-counting, sacrificial, suffering service to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so whenever, as we've seen, whenever Paul says, here's what my life as a follower of Jesus looked like, what he's doing is saying, Follow my example as I have followed the example of Jesus. Be imitators of me as I am an imitator of Christ. And so that's what he means. Look at verses 24 through 26. This is our focus today. Look look here as we dig deeper into this message. This is what he means. He says, I do not account my life of any value or as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And then he says to these elders in verse 25, And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Because again, affliction and imprisonment and persecution and and eventually martyrdom And death are what lay ahead for the Apostle Paul. So the first thing to take note of here today is that Paul is saying to these elders, to these church leaders, to these pastors, he's saying, look, guys, this is what the ministry is all about. And this is what we need to be saying to anyone who aspires to the ministry or anyone who stands in ministry over the flock of God. This is what it's all about. This is what shepherding the flock of God is all about. See, he's saying, bottom line, it's not about you. If you get into the ministry because of you, then don't get into the ministry. It's not for you. See? I mean... This is very much what Jesus has said already about any disciple of His, any follower of His, anyone who would come after Him, not just those who would follow Him as leaders in His church, but every single Christian and disciple and follower of Jesus has to, Jesus Himself says, count the cost. Be ready to bear up the cross. Be willing to forsake anything and everything in this world. Be ready to endure any opposition or affliction that this world pours out and endure any loss in order to follow Him who laid His life down and aside for us all. Right? Isn't that what Jesus has already said? Whoever does not 
take his cross up and follow me is not worthy of me, Jesus said, right? If you're only coming after me because of what I can do for you, then you're really no different than all of those people that followed me around in Capernaum and Bethsaida looking for the free meals, right? The multiplied fish and loaves. But as soon as I started speaking truth, they all went away. As soon as I started preaching the gospel, they all left. They didn't want to hear him. You got to be ready to take up your cross. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. That's what it means to be a Christian. Your life isn't your own anymore. Let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me, right? That's what Jesus says. Go and sell everything that you possess and give it all to the poor is what Jesus said to the rich young ruler. Not not because he always demands and requires that every one of his followers divest themselves of earthly possessions and and live in poverty, but because he does require the willingness to live in poverty if that's what the cost is counted to be by his providence. Because bottom line, nothing in this world can be as precious to the follower of Jesus as Jesus himself is. Not our closest relationships, not our money, not our dreams, not our ambitions, not our lives themselves can be more precious to us than He is if we are to be followers of His, if we are to be worthy of Him who poured out His own life to redeem us. That's what He means when He says to every follower of His, if anyone comes to Me, and does not despise his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, willing to part with them all if that's what it means to follow me. If you're not willing to count that cost, you cannot follow me at all. You cannot be my disciple. And since that is foundationally, fundamentally, definitionally true of what it means to be a follower and disciple of Jesus in general, that has got to be exemplified especially in the lives of those followers of His who are called into leadership in His church. Who are called to pay close and careful attention to keep watch over the flock of God's sheep. Because, and and listen, if any of you young men are aspiring to leadership in the church, God bless you, but listen, look at verse 28. What it means to be in leadership in God's church means to be given care over the flock, the church of God, that He obtained with His own blood. That... That's how precious the flock is to God. That's how precious the sheep are to the great shepherd. That's how precious the church is to Jesus Christ who purchased every member of the church with the inestimable cost of His own blood, His own life. So being a leader in His church, being an elder, being a pastor, which of course, is a word that comes from the same root word as the word pasture, right? As in where sheep are kept, where sheep are fed, where sheep are cared for. Being a shepherd 
under the great authority of the great shepherd, overseeing his precious blood-bought sheep is not a calling that any follower of Jesus can ever pursue for the sake of their own personal gain. And that's what Paul is emphasizing to the Ephesian elders here. Guys, it's not about you. First and foremost, keep that in your minds as you shepherd his flock. Being elders is not for you. It's not about what you get out of it. It's about serving Jesus, who suffered to be your servant. And it's about watching over his sheep, who he died to redeem. And this is a huge part of why it is so imperative that church leaders, that elders, that pastors are appointed very, very carefully and not too quickly. Because it's easy to pass an exam on doctrinal truths of Scripture, but it's harder to say I am ready to bear up my cross and divest myself of any personal rights and count any cost and account myself as nothing and my life is not precious to myself and endure anything necessary in order to feed and protect the sheep that Jesus died for. That's hard. And when you get into the ministry, you have no idea how hard it is. But this is, it's so important not to put men into this role too quickly because there's a lot that an elder has to learn in, in terms of the truth of the Word of God, how to preach it, how to teach it, how to apply it to people's lives for, for their discipleship and their growth and grace and knowledge. But also, there's so much more even to be learned in terms of the great cost that is required of overseers of the precious flock of God. And all too often, men pursue that ministry. Men are appointed to that ministry before they're ready for it. And and without the necessary self-abasing, cost-counting disposition, all too often, men pursue the ministry out of an ambition for themselves and what they're going to get out of it. A lot of times it has to do with recognition. They think, I'm going to be somebody important. I'll be the next John MacArthur. I'll be the next R.C. Sproul. I'll be famous. Esteem, the approval of men sometimes is what's motivating them. Sometimes it's a hunger for power. A really sinful, fleshly, prideful need to be in charge. To be in control of other people. Is, is, is all too often what motivates men to pursue ministry when it should be the opposite, right? I'm ready to lay it all down. I'm ready to suffer for you. Sometimes it's even a pursuit of the things of the world. We see this all too often in modern American evangelicalism where some pastors turn the ministry of shepherding Christ's sheep into more of a business that's lucrative for them, that they gain greatly from. They turn themselves and they turn their church into into a brand that's highly marketable and then they profit massively from it and become as wealthy as any CEO in the country. 
So all, all too often, also when churches are looking for who to appoint as leaders, it's a man's talents, it's a man's personality, it's a man's ability to produce numerical or, or financial growth. And all of that is given far more weight all too often in the, the consideration of whether or not this is a good leader for Christ's church. Much more than, than his fundamental understanding that it is Christ's church that he's considering becoming an overseer of and that Christ suffered in obtaining his church and that serving Christ and his flock starts with that same basic selfless sacrificial disposition that Paul speaks of right there in verse 24, right? I do not account my own life as of any value or as precious to myself. And then doesn't he say down in verse 33, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. It wasn't about getting rich. It wasn't about what it would profit me. I just want to fulfill this ministry, whatever it costs me, of bringing the gospel of the grace of God to bear in this world. That's all I want. Even if it kills me. So he's saying to the elders from Ephesus, first and foremost, look, this ministry is not for you guys. It's for Christ. It's for His sheep for whom He suffered and for whom He died. It's for them and for His glory, whatever the cost. And, and for Paul, the cost was pretty great, wasn't it? It was pretty extreme. It cost him everything. At the conference I was just at up in the Rocky Mountains in Colorado last week, one of the men who was there has been a missionary for years in Papua, Indonesia, working in the middle of the jungle, in the midst of a, an indigenous people known as the Korowai people of that part of the world, right on the border between Papua, Indonesia and Papua New Guinea. And this guy's in his mid-40s. He's younger than me. He's supported as a missionary. He'll never be wealthy in this world. He's given up all the comforts that we very easily take for granted here in America. We, we complain when PG&E shuts our power off. We don't have power in the jungle in Indonesia. And this man has spent years with his wife, with his children, living in the untamed jungle, going from tribe to tribe with the gospel. And he's here for a time in the United States right now so that he can receive medical treatment because in his time in the jungle, in spite of all of the preventative medications that he's taken and that exist, his body nonetheless has been absolutely ravaged by so many parasites and so many infections that it just, it doesn't work, his body doesn't work right anymore. His, he, he can't control his, his muscles normally anymore. He's in constant pain. His face is permanently distorted. He can't control his facial muscles well. So, so when he talks, his muscles are involuntarily doing things that look odd, that aren't normal. 
because so much damage has been done neurologically to his body that can't, can't be reversed. But he, if, when you talk to him, and when you listen to him talk, he never talks about any of that unless you ask him about it directly. He, he, it's, it's clear, it's obvious that permanent damage to his nerves and body and muscles ha, has been done. But all he talks about are the Korowai people who have come to know Jesus. Who'd never heard of Jesus before. And they've started to build churches. And as they've learned to preach the gospel themselves, and as they've looked at this white man from America who gave up everything and came and has suffered so much debilitating disease to serve them, they've become sacrificial servants of one another, and they're starting to go out into other villages and tribes, and the gospel's spreading. And when my friend, when Paul gets up there, and says, here's what's going on in Indonesia. Here's what I want you to pray for. It's not about his own health. He says, please pray that I'll be able to go back as soon as possible and keep on shepherding those sheep who are living out in those villages in the jungle so that they can keep on growing and the more disciples can be made. Right? It'd be easy for him to say, you know what, I... I went, I did my bit, I've done a lot, it's cost me, it's cost my family a lot. And so we're going to be done, but he doesn't say that. He says, can you pray for us that we'll be able to go back into the jungle as soon as possible? Because he understands, see what Paul understood, that the need out there is far greater than the need of his physical health. See, this is the kind of life that Paul lived too, right? As a follower of Jesus, especially as a leader in the precious blood-bought church of Jesus. Paul was willing to sacrifice anything. And that's what he's pleading with these elders to get their minds around and their hearts around too, that being elders in Christ's church isn't about them, isn't for them, that they need to be so divested of self-interest and any desire for personal gain that they're ready and willing to count whatever the cost and suffer any loss for the sake of Christ's precious sheep. Because if they aren't ready... If they're, if they're in the ministry for themselves, or if there are limits, hard limits to the, the costs that they're willing to count, or if their perspective is more on what they're going to gain, whether it's financially in terms of worldly gain, in terms of esteem, in terms of recognition, or, or power, or control, all the stuff that fleshly pride craves, if that's how their hearts are wired, then they're going to end up either allowing great harm to come to Christ's sheep or, much worse, inflicting great harm themselves on Christ's precious flock. And I've seen both all too often, and we all have really, haven't we? Cowardly pastors and elders who aren't willing to preach the word and to feed the sheep and to 
keep watch over them and make them susceptible to the ways of the world and exposing them to all kinds of of harm from the lies of the devil that are out there, making them susceptible to the wrath of God that is to come. And we've all seen pastors too who inflict horrible harm on the sheep themselves. And so this this is right at the heart of Paul's plea to these men that they have to see themselves fundamentally as not being in service to themselves, but in service to Jesus, whose precious sheep He has entrusted to them. And they have to be willing and ready to do whatever is necessary to provide for and to protect and to defend the flock of God. And the ultimate reason in Paul's writings all throughout the New Testament, why this plea to carefully and selflessly and sacrificially tend to God's sheep, why it's such a matter of massive urgency, the, the, reason, the fundamental reason why can be summed up by what Paul said in the letter that he wrote to the church in Thessalonica in Greece. Listen, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. He's he's writing to Christians. He's writing to the flock of God's sheep in Thessalonica. And and he commends them for turning away from their idols in order to serve the true and living God. And for waiting for the Son of God, Jesus, to return from heaven, whom God raised from the dead, Jesus, who... Listen, delivers us from the wrath that is to come. You hear that? The first and foremost reason for the absolute urgency that drove Paul's ministry and life and that he's now impressing on these ministers from the Ephesian church, the reason for the urgency is that the wrath of God is coming. And Jesus is the only one who delivers people from it. And that's all that ultimately matters. That's the big need that people in this world have. And it's an eternally urgent and important need that's, that's bigger than all of the other needs that so many churches emphasize and prioritize nowadays. The absolute urgency with which Paul led his own life the willingness that he had to count so high a cost to his own life as he did, the willingness that that my friend Paul has to go back to the jungle that ruined his body, the reason behind Paul's urgent plea for the leaders of the church in Ephesus to, to count this kind of cost themselves and follow him in this way of living as he had followed Christ is because nothing short of eternity is at stake. So many churches, so many pastors are so preoccupied with so many other things. Things of this world. Other priorities like people feeling purposeful and accepted and happy in this world. People becoming successfully healthy and wealthy and prosperous in this world and having their best lives now. In this world. 
pastors, churches are, are so often so focused on so many other agendas that they're failing to address the greatest problem that every single human has, which is that we, all sinners in this world, every single person who has not called on the name of Jesus for salvation is in horrible danger of being consumed for all of eternity by the wrath of God that is to come. It is to come. It is to come. It could come today. And so many churches, so many pastors have become so influenced by, so enamored with the the deceptive wisdom of this world and the corrupt values of this world and the fallen programs and agendas and appetites and expectations and and demands of this world that, that that's what they're starting to feed people because that's what gets people to come because They'll accumulate for themselves teachers that, that tickle their ears and tell them what they want to hear. And these guys, they're not even focused on the reality that Jesus will return like a thief in the night, he himself says in the Gospel of Matthew, right? He'll come. Revelation 19 guarantees it, clothed in a robe dipped with blood and with him all the armies of heaven ready in all holiness and justice to not my words, but God's words to tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of Almighty God. Revelation 19.15 It's coming. He's coming. When He comes, He will cast into the everlasting lake of fire all who refused to worship God. He will I, I know they're unpleasant words, but they are God's words. It's an unpopular topic, and so a lot of times no one wants to talk about it. People feel offended by it. People say, well, if that's what you're going to preach, I'm going to go somewhere with <laughs> it's a much more pleasant message. People don't want to hear that Jesus is coming to tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of Almighty God. Can you, can you imagine... I can't, you can't imagine the fullness of what the fury of the wrath of the holy, almighty God is like. People don't want to hear it. People will rage against the messengers of that message. But it doesn't make the reality of the coming wrath of the almighty God any less real. It's what's real. People don't want to hear, I didn't want to hear uh, my wife's doctor say the word cancer when he called us on the phone several years back. I didn't want to hear that word. I didn't want to hear the ER doctor say the words acute septicemia about my firstborn son a few years ago. And then have them tell us that he had to spend weeks in the hospital and might actually need to be airlifted to Stanford for critical care. I don't want to hear that. I wanted to hear, take two of these and go home and you'll be fine in the morning. But see, me not wanting to hear it didn't make it any less real. Certainly didn't make the need for treatment any less urgent. And what kind of doctor would it have been who didn't tell us? Who said, these poor people don't want to hear this. They don't, want to, they don't want to deal with this. Let's just send them home. What kind of doctor would it be who was only willing to tell me what I wanted to hear? 
because they didn't want to upset me or offend me. They told me what I needed to hear because the need was urgent. And if I didn't do anything about it, then disaster would come. And it didn't have anything to do with how I felt about it. Your wife needs surgery, the oncologist said, so that the cancer wouldn't spread. Your son needs treatment, or he could very well die. It was urgent. The everlasting wrath of the one true God who is holy, 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 and who is all mighty. There is no limit to his power. The everlasting wrath is coming. Listen to what Paul says to the church in Colossae, Colossians chapter 3. He says, you need to put to death what is earthly in you. He means the sin of their flesh. Colossians 3.5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, all sexual immorality, all impurity, all passion, all evil desire, covetousness, idolatry, because, verse 6, it is on account of these things that the wrath of God is coming. It's coming. And if you don't put all of that to death by the power of the grace of Christ within you, The wrath of God will consume you. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Romans 1 guarantees all ungodliness. People in this world, because of their hard and unrepentant hearts, are storing up for themselves the wrath of God on the day of wrath when His judgment will be revealed. Romans 2 warns it's urgent eternally more urgent than any other urgent threat or need or priority in this world. And who are we if we fail to tell people because we're worried that they won't like us? Or because they might feel offended? Who are we if we change the message in order to make it fit with the priorities that they have and the things that they feel like are more important than the coming wrath of God? Who are we if we change the message in order to make it more acceptable to people? This is why Paul said that he never shrunk back from proclaiming the Word, all of the Word. Not only, remember, in private where he had a group of people who liked what he was saying and wanted to listen and so he met with him, but also in public where he would stand up and people would start throwing rocks at him. Not only teaching about faith, but also about repentance. Right? This is Paul taught the whole counsel of God, he says in verse 27. He didn't shrink back. He even taught the unpopular parts that people raged against because in the midst of the riot that happened in Ephesus where people were trying to kill him. On the other hand, many people believed. Many turned from their sin. Many turned from their idolatry. Many cast themselves on the mercies of Jesus. Many were saved from the wrath of God that is to come. This is why Paul says, in verse 26 of Acts 20, I am innocent of the blood of all. Why do you say that? What's he talking about? 
he has in mind here Old Testament Scripture that gives a stark warning to people who know that the danger is coming but refuse out of cowardice or out of pride to say anything about it. Paul's thinking about the Old Testament Scriptures in the, in the Old Testament prophecy of Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a prophet of God during the days of the Babylonian exile, right? During the time when the wrath of God was burning against Judah and Jerusalem because of the sin and idolatry and immorality of his people. And so God raised up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, to come and enact judgment against them. And in the midst of the outpouring of his judgment, God was calling his people to repent of the sin which had brought his wrath raining down on them. In the midst of the wrath, there was mercy. God saying, just turn from the sin and turn to me and I will be merciful to you. And he was speaking that merciful message of repentance through the prophets like Ezekiel. And in Ezekiel, he warns the prophet not to shrink back from warning the people about the wrath that will destroy them if they fail to repent. Listen, this is from Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 18 through 20. God says, if I say, God says, if I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you, prophet, give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life, then... That wicked person will die for his iniquity. He's culpable. He's responsible. The wrath of God will destroy him in an expression of the justice of God. But also, if you failed to warn him, his blood I will require at your hand. Oh, my word. Right? But if you warn the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness, I I gave you the warning, I preached the gospel and you refuse to turn. He refuses to turn from his wicked way, then he shall die for his iniquity, but you will have delivered your own soul. Because you gave the warning, you spoke the truth. Again, if a righteous person turns from his righteousness and begins committing injustice, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. Because you have not warned him, he shall die for his sin, and his righteous deeds that he has done shall not be remembered, but his blood I will require from your hand. Now, see, this is what Paul is thinking of when he says, I am innocent of the blood of all. Because even when it cost him everything in his life, even when it meant he was literally probably the most unpopular guy on the planet, the most hated guy on the planet, he didn't shrink back from warning people about the wrath of God that is to come and calling them to turn from their wicked ways and be saved through faith in Jesus. And now he's pleading urgently with the elders and the pastors of the church of Ephesus to do the same thing. This is what it's all about. And these days, not only are pastors and elders and churches not warning people about the coming wrath of God, right? They're not. 
Not a lot of sermons on the wrath of God. People don't like to come to them. Not only are they, are they, are they being silent, they're, all too often they're telling people that the very things that God's wrath is coming on account of are perfectly fine. Don't worry about those things. If that's who you are, that's who you are. What does Paul say in Colossians 3? Sexual immorality. Impurity. Passion, evil desire, covetousness, idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And there are pastors today in our county saying, don't worry about those things. You be you. Pastors who do that are not just guilty of failing to warn of the coming wrath. They're guilty of becoming, which we're going to look at next week, themselves the fierce wolves that end up devouring the people with falsehood and lies, and there will be much blood on the hands of many of them when Jesus comes. That's a terrifying thought. In Romans 1, Paul talks about wicked people in this world who suppress God's truth. They willfully embrace lies. They're given over by God to all kinds of debauchery. Listen to what he says, verses 29 through 31, Romans 1. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Then, listen, he says this in verse 32. Even though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, not only do they do them, they give approval to those who practice them. Sometimes that approval comes explicitly when false teachers, fierce wolves, we'll see next week, actually call things good that God abominates, that God hates, that God calls evil from pulpits. Sometimes the approval comes more implicitly, more more tacitly when pastors and elders are too cowardly to confront sin and deal with sin when they see it. And I think what Paul means there in verse 32 of Romans 1 is that sometimes when that happens, when, when pastors fail to confront sin and deal with it when they see it, they're giving tacit approval to people's sins. Sometimes it's because they're living in that sin themselves. Wendy and I have a very precious friend who was in a church in Southern California and her marriage was in trouble. And it was obvious that her husband was involved with some other woman. The signs were unmistakable. And I can't say them out loud from the pulpit today. And the pastors of their church would do nothing about it. Wouldn't listen to her. Wouldn't hold him to account would easily believe all of his ridiculous stories and lies, wouldn't call him to repent, and the marriage was shattered. He left her, he divorced her, he ran off with the other woman. And then it came to be known. 
months later that the pastor himself wasn't being faithful to his wife. He was indulging sin in his own life. And so the church elders dismissed him and promoted the associate pastor who also hadn't done anything about it and who, it turned out, months later, was an alcoholic, was, a, was, was doing drugs. I mean, no wonder they didn't confront this poor woman's husband in his sin. No wonder they turned a blind eye. No wonder they gave tacit approval because they were practicing such things themselves. And there will be blood on their hands. In Ezekiel 33, God uses the illustration of a night watchman whose job it was to sit on top of the city wall and keep watch all night long without falling asleep for any danger that would threaten the city and the people sleeping in the city. Listen, Ezekiel 33, 7-9 You, son of man, he's talking to Ezekiel, I have made you a watchman over the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, then that wicked one will surely die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn him to turn from his wicked way, even if he doesn't turn, he will die for his iniquity, but you will have delivered your own soul. This is just simply the standard that God's inherent righteousness and justice requires. Those who know about the danger are responsible to warn people about the danger, to speak, to plead with people, to do what is needed to avoid the danger. Otherwise, if they don't, and then the danger comes, then even if it was their own sin that brought about the danger, the judgment, the wrath of God, The blood of those people is on the hands of the cowardly, unfaithful watchmen who failed to warn them, who failed to plead with them to turn from their sin. To keep silent for fear of upsetting the people is to be guilty of their blood, God says. God just, He says it. And so often watchmen are silent for fear of being unpopular, for fear of ridicule, for fear of being called a fool, for fear of persecution, whatever the fear is that prevents the watchman from sounding the alarm, that keeps the pastor from warning the sinner that is on account of that, that it is on account of their sin that the wrath of the Almighty God is coming. And, and that the only way of salvation is through faith in Jesus who bore that wrath on the cross. Whatever worldly, fleshly, man-centered fear keeps someone from giving the unpopular, unpleasant warning about the wrath of God and the plea for repentance and the the true undiluted message of the gospel that, that Jesus didn't come to make you happy or healthy or wealthy or prosperous or to deliver you first and foremost from any kind of earthly, political, social oppression... He came to save you from the wrath of God. Anyone who changes the message, makes it about something else, fails to give it. Whatever whatever worldly, fleshly, man-centered fear 
is responsible for that failure pales infinitely in comparison to the fear that the watchman ought to feel of being culpable for the blood of sinners who weren't warned and, and, and of being caught up with them in the coming wrath of the Almighty God. And so Paul says, this is what motivated me. That sinners might be saved and that I might be innocent of the blood of all. That I might not be a coward before God, an unfaithful watchman over the flock for which he died. Paul never feared men more than he feared God. Paul never shrunk back from declaring the whole counsel of God. Paul never failed to warn sinners of the wrath of God that is coming on account of the sin and the unrighteousness that is in the lives of every sinner in this world. Paul never failed to call people to come and find salvation from the wrath of God in the mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because everyone... Everyone, Peter says in Acts 2.21, who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. He won't turn anyone away. There won't be a sinner in hell, Charles Spurgeon said, who says, I came to Jesus and he rejected me. Not a single one. Everyone who confesses that it is on account of their sin that the wrath of God is coming and so they turn away from their sin and they turn in faithful dependence to Jesus who bore that wrath on the cross, who alone can satisfy the wrath of God, turn it away, every one of them will be saved. And all those who are saved by the power of that gospel and the mercy of of this God whose wrath burns against sin but who sent his only begotten son to intercept it to say so it doesn't have to burn forever against you I will allow it to burn against my only begotten son and Jesus said I'm up for that I'm willing for that and for the joy set before him he endured that cross there There won't be anyone that he turns away. Every sinner who comes to Jesus will be saved because the marvelous grace of our loving Lord is greater than all our sin, right? And so we'll stop here. But Christians, this is what it's all about. This is what our church is all about. Preach the truth. Don't worry if it's unpopular or if they come and arrest us or try to shut us down. And you Christians who have been saved from the wrath of God that is to come, you be heralds of this gospel out there. You be proclaimers of this word. You be bold. You stand up there on the wall together and you say to the world, Jesus is your only salvation. And he is a wonderful, merciful Savior, right? Pray with me today. Our God and our Father, how thankful we are to you for your all-sufficient grace. How thankful we are to you that even though you are holy, 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 and that in your holiness and righteousness and justice, you always deal with sin That's a good thing. 
You don't let any of it go unchecked. Father, what happened in Texas will not go unchecked. You are an avenger of your holiness and your righteous standards of of goodness and truth in this world, but you are also a merciful God. And so in pouring out judgment, you spared us by pouring out on somebody in our stead. How grateful we are for the eternal rest that we have from ever having to endure any of your condemning wrath against our sin because your grace is greater. Father, give us the wisdom and give us the courage to never shrink back from the fullness of your word and for the, from the, the truthfulness of the message of the gospel as we strive in your strength to be faithful in bringing the light of Christ into the darkness of this world. Father, we love you and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.